Hello and welcome to this edition of Cato Connects. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute. Today we're talking about the big changes at the Federal Reserve and uh, looking ahead to 2018. Uh, we're speaking with Tate Lacey. He is a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute in our Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And uh, so, Tate, uh, th- th- I want to say that, again, this... this uh, uh, conversation is going to be driven largely by your questions. So if you have a questions a question you'd like to tweet that out, please use the hashtag CatoConnects or uh, tag me directly in your question, and we'll get to it as as quickly as we can. And also, we'll be taking some questions via Facebook Live on the uh, Cato Institute's Facebook page. Tate, uh, welcome. Thank you for having me, Caleb. When it comes to the Federal Reserve, what was the biggest news of the past month for the Fed? Well, the biggest news is uh, that Governor Powell, now Governor Powell, is uh, the chair nominee, Powell, uh, and he is likely to be confirmed. He was the president's pick to succeed uh, Chair Yellen, who is has announced that she will be stepping down from the Federal Reserve uh, upon confirmation of her colleague. Okay, so what do we know about him, or you know, how different is he from Janet Yellen? You know, Janet Yellen inherited this an entirely new policy tool, essentially, and mm-hmm. has been defended it quite a bit. And it is just, we're really far away from the old days of uh, monetary policy uh, when these kinds of decisions were rooted in one policy tool. Now there are two. What what do we know about Jay Powell? So uh, Chair Yellen actually was within the Federal Reserve System through the transition. Uh, Jay Powell was not. So as long as he has been at the board, we have had uh, the new system that you rightly point out, the the major change occurring uh, in the dark days of late 2008. Um, he was called uh, in a lot of the press the continuation candidate when his name was being bandied about as a potential nominee. Uh, it was a somewhat of an interesting uh, moniker for him given that Chair Yellen herself uh, was in the running. Um, but he is widely predicted, and I think rightly so, to continue the plans uh, that the Yellen Fed have put forward. Uh, Those plans are posted on the Fed's website. Uh, They call it their normalization plan that comprises uh, both gradual rate increases uh, and a reduction in the balance sheet. So particularly in his first year, he is unlikely to introduce uh, any new policy. Okay, well, let's take a take a look at that balance sheet to start with. This is from the Fred, the Federal Reserve uh, Bank uh, chart maker. Um, That's right. This is the the balance sheet uh, for the Federal Reserve. What does this What does this mean? So you can see there was uh, you know about twenty years of roughly steady growth um, on the Fed's balance sheet. They made most of their decisions at the margin. Uh, and as the economy was descending uh, into the depths of the financial crisis uh, and the Great Recession, you can see uh, an immediate jump uh, and then several uh, further iterations uh, and then a last huge jump, which would be QE3. This was, These were the uh, asset-buying programs that the Federal Reserve instituted uh, to combat the crisis. Um, and this is now... Uh, the balance sheet reduction is going to bring this down uh, considerably is their intention, but it is worth noting that it will not go down to anything like a pre-recession trend level. Okay, so the trend level was just like a very slight uh, increase in the size of the, the balance sheet over time. That's and right. And at the end of 2008, a giant uh, change. You're saying it will never see... It won't. It will not go back down to what it was, even to the previous trend. And, and Federal Reserve officials give a couple of... 
reasons for that. One is an elevated demand for currency. Um, but they're also keen to keep a larger balance sheet as a potential tool to be deployed uh, if and when we hit another downturn. Okay. So um, the the big, I guess the big headline news for the Federal Reserve just this week was a quarter point increase in their target for the federal funds rate. Correct. Um, you have, we have some of the historical U.S. federal funds rate data here and this does not look notable. <laughs> the fact that we have a quarter point increase in the federal funds rate doesn't doesn't seem like a very important thing. Well, there's two ways to look at it. You're right to say that the magnitude of the rate increases doesn't look notable given how far they fell going into the Great Recession. Uh, what is notable, however, is the different way that monetary policy is now conducted. I think you referenced this uh, early in one of your remarks. Um, previous Prior to the Great Recession, monetary policy was conducted uh, in the interbank market is what it was called. And the federal funds rate was set by uh, mostly domestic commercial banks lending reserves. You can think of that as just the cash that banks hold at the Fed to one another. And these reserves were, of course, used to fund loans, uh, the bank's expansion as they um, supplied credit to the economy. Uh, and it, that has totally changed. Um, as we went into the crisis, you can see uh, that previous chart, the balance sheet grew. An interbank market that operated as such um, would no longer allow the Fed to, as they would say, control the short-term rate, um, particularly when they wanted to move it up, as they've now done five times uh, starting in December of 2015. So now when they raise interest rates, uh, they're no longer adjusting that federal funds rate, that, that rate that banks uh, pay one another to to borrow reserves. They post administered rates, so you might hear the term IOER. That's interest on excess reserves, um, and they just announce it, and then they announce a, a separate rate, which is uh, this is a, maybe a bit technical, uh, but a reverse repo rate, uh, which sort of in between those two, you can just think of it. There's an effective federal funds rate, um, but the players in that market have dramatically changed, um, and Chair Yellen recently, now that she uh, knows that she's no longer going to be at the board, has increased her defense of this system. Um, but you can think of it as essentially the Fed, you know, part of the United States government, paying these banks to just sit idly on these reserves. So this massive increase in the balance sheet, well, a lot of that money that's been created is sitting with domestic commercial banks, and they just receive interest payments on it. Okay. Uh, we have a question here from I am not. Thank you. Uh, the question is, did Yellen's curtain call just knock the wind out of the U.S. bullish stance? <laughs> uh, well, I guess maybe that in some ways remains to be seen. Um, I think the notable sort of curtain call, I'm, I'm assuming the question is referring to some of her uh, answers during the FOMC press conference on Wednesday. Um, she did, I think the notable part, um, more so than she had previously as Fed chair, voice her concern over uh, the debt levels and how much the United States is borrowing. Now, of course, this is not really a policy decision that's in the purview of the Federal Reserve. So during her tenure, she, she didn't talk much about it. Um, but I think by and large, she reiterated the points that she's made. Um, I think the, the plans that have been developed in the Yellen Fed, as I think I indicated earlier, are likely to continue uh, barring sort of economic changes uh, under a Powell Fed. Okay. You mentioned that uh, Chair Yellen, to the extent that uh, she is 
has recognizes that she's no longer going to be uh, at the Federal Reserve is has been more uh, defensive or defended more strongly the system we have now. The system we have now is essentially two policy levers where there had been one before. One was, is setting uh, the federal funds rate and trying to influence other interest rates through that rate. Mm-hmm. The new one is paying interest on reserves. What happens when those two are at loggerheads? Because I can, I can imagine there's go, there will be a circumstance where one is going to make the other less effective, and it seems that, that uh, we're in a situation we're in uncharted territory with respect to giving the Federal Reserve more than one tool to try to influence the economy. Yeah, and you're exactly right when you point out uh, the uncharted territory uh, about this system. Uh, the Fed has a balance sheet reduction plan, which they. Uh, have indicated most Fed officials that it will go on gradually and in the background. But when they make these statements, they always caveat it that uh, as economic changes may occur, they may redeploy the balance sheet. Um, But they have essentially no experience uh, but for this rapid increase over the last 10 years of using the balance sheet as a tool of monetary policy. Um, They claim that they want to get back to, quote, normal, normal interest rates. Uh, but as you also point out rightly, they're doing it in a, in a very, very different way by paying most of the banks that used to participate in this market uh, basically to sit on the sidelines. So you can think about the, the pre-crisis operating framework as they would adjust the amount of reserves. So you can think about that as changing the balance sheet and to, to adjust the, the proper interest rate. So those things more or less moved, moved in concert. They were, they were part of the same apparatus. Uh, and that's totally gone. So as they continue, let's assume for the sake of argument, I think the market implied rates right now after the FOMC meeting call for another three increases in the in these interest rates next year. Well, that's going to make holding reserves more attractive because you'll be getting higher interest payments as they as they make successive rate hikes, the first of which is looking like to, it'll be in March. Um, well, that's going to make banks want to hold on to reserves more, not less, uh, which, all things being equal, is going to be a contractionary force on the economy. And it's unclear um, if the Federal Reserve, particularly Jay Powell when he takes over, has thought through that additional contractionary pressure while they're, of course, increasing interest rates, which, again, all things equal, um, puts a little bit of uh, downward pressure as, as well. And it's, it, it's interesting to me that we're in a situation that was uh, in part a reaction to the financial crisis, which was excel- itself partially regula- driven by regulatory policy. And the, the response from the Federal Reserve was to dramatically uh, increase liquidity into the system. And, well, ha- and, and, and then pay for it not to actually go into the system. Right. And, but yes, and, and pay for it not to go into the system. And here we are, Ten nine years later, and the Federal Reserve now wants to assume that their ability to keep banks holding on to this cash is just going to be a permanent policy tool. Is that is the is the view that this is just a new tool and we're just going to keep using this tool? And yeah, we're in uncharted territory, but we need this authority. Well, they certainly haven't articulated any uh, alternative to that. Um, so it seems that they're prepared to continue this new regime. Um, and again, Chair Yellen has 
increased her defense of it quite a bit, calling it uh, on several occasions the key tool of monetary policy, the only way to uh, maintain any monetary control. Um, Now, of course, it needn't be that way. They could make uh, a bigger adjustment to the balance sheet and try to transition from this current, uh, the technical jargon would be a floor system, uh, back to a corridor system where all the market participants were back in the federal funds market. It was a much more market-driven interest rate, and the Federal Reserve was simply adjusting the quantity of reserves uh, in the system as a whole. They've, they've as yet, given no indication that they have a desire to return to that. All right. If you have a question for uh, Tate Lacey from the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, you can tweet it at us with the hashtag Cato Connects, and uh, be sure to tag me at C.O. Brown, and we'll try to get to uh, as many of those questions over the next uh, 15 or 20 minutes or so. So what should the Federal Reserve be doing? It should be, I presume, correct me, should be shrinking the balance sheet dramatically so that this other policy tool is rendered irrelevant. Yeah, well, they and they are going to do that. They've they've established this uh, system of sort of gradually increasing cap. So uh, prior to the balance sheet reduction announcement, what they would do is when a security, a bond uh, matured on their balance sheet, they would reinvest it, uh, reinvest those proceeds. And that essentially kept the balance sheet at the same level for a while. Uh, they've now set caps um, they'll allow a certain amount to roll off and only reinvest the proceeds uh, above those levels. And this is um, this is in an effort to have a smooth transition because they have different maturity dates across their entire portfolio, and they don't want to be in a situation where there's sort of very little roll off at one point, then a lot. They want to they want to get that sort of potential lumpiness out of the system. Um, so it is going to go up. They do have some target range. They're very coy about where it's where it's going to be. But th- what they're not uh, mysterious about is that it will be quite quite a bit larger. The question will be: Is that final resting level, that level of the balance sheet, going to afford them the opportunity to transition back to the federal funds market that we had before the before the financial crisis? That is that is the key question. Um, I think they ought to go back to that kind of a system. I don't think we should have uh, these twin levers, particularly one of which the Fed has very, very little experience uh, using. I don't think we want to find out what a balance sheet wind down looks like in the midst of a crisis were we to go into another downturn. Uh, But again, when a Fed official is pinned down on what the future of uh, monetary policy is going to look like, it is going to stick with interest on excess reserves. Okay. Uh, a question here from Sir Jeffrey Lebowski. Thank you, dude. Uh, when will the Federal Reserve allow an audit of the gold in the New York Fed? Well, I, I don't know when they'll allow the uh, the gold to be audited, but there are calls for uh, increasing audits of the Fed. Now, it, it does need to be stated that the Fed is audited uh, in a number of ways, um, but there are particular parts of its implementation and the kind of business it conducts that are not part of that. So namely, most of the monetary de- policy decisions, a lot of those deliberations, um, they do release uh, transcripts of those meetings five years on. Uh, but there are certain communications between governors, uh, between regional bank presidents uh, that are not shown to the GAO. Um, the Fed is very interested in in not releasing that. Um, it would be an increase uh, of transparency. But in terms of the conduct of monetary policy, uh, it does remain to be seen that there are potentially better changes than, say, um, you know, auditing some of these portions that are that are uh, as yet uncovered. Um, and we could talk about some of those if you want. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned that the the Fed is audited to some extent, but it's mostly 
here are our books. And, yeah, you know, Ben, ben Bernanke and Ron Paul had this conversation many mm-hmm. times over several years in which uh, they were clearly talking about two different things. Yeah, so the defense typically is that they're audited like a financial institution and that um, which they publish their balance sheet weekly. You can see what their assets and their liabilities are. So that does get audited to, sh- to, to verify that those weekly publications are, are true and accurate reflection of the Fed's holdings. Um, so I think that's the kind of defense that Bernanke points out. When people say they want increased audits, they're talking more about some of those deliberations, getting a better sense of how they're conducting policy. And I think Federal Reserve officials, when they push back against that, there's a question of politicizing some of those um, some of those decisions. So to give an example, maybe you could think about if there was more political pressure, say during Paul Volcker's tenure, when he was trying to wring inflation out of the system. Now that's largely today, I think rightly so, thought of as a good thing, a, a series of decisions that got the the high destructive inflation of the 70s out of the financial system. Uh, it went a long way into inducing what we call the great moderation. That was a lot of Greenspan's tenure where we saw low, stable inflation, uh, good economic performance. But you could imagine while he was raising interest rates dramatically to do that, to get that inflation out of the system, um, you can read the news of the day. Members of the Hill were, were displeased with some of those moves. You, and, and that increased tension if the Fed had to answer for everything in real time, could could have been a problem. We would not want to have had inflation persist. Well, and I think I think well to his credit, and I think we should give him as much credit as we can. I think Jimmy Carter knew this at the time. He, yeah, he knew that this was the path that was going to be taken. And as you know, whether or not you want to politicize things, people do choose uh, chair chairs of the Federal Reserve based on what they think will be politically advantageous in the the window of their political careers, and Jimmy Carter seemed not particularly concerned with uh, what would probably be negative impacts on his own electoral prospects. Yeah, and uh, the late Alan Meltzer, who was who wrote a, a tremendous uh, history of the Federal Reserve, has pointed this out that uh, during the interview, uh, Paul Volcker said to him, "Mr. President, I intend to get inflation out of the system." and to your point, Carter said that's exactly uh, what we need to have happen. I, I think in this in these kinds of instances, it is you do want the central bank to have a longer time horizon, which which they're adjusting policy than say some people on Capitol Hill, particularly members of the House who are almost in this day and age almost always running for office. Um, so you do the, the, for the Federal Reserve to look past one election cycle is a good thing. But again, increasing transparency. Uh, at the Federal Reserve is also a good thing. All right. So um, you're a fan of nominal GDP targeting. I am. Um, explain what that is briefly. So nominal GDP targeting would be a separate target for the Fed to pursue. So right now they have this rather ambiguous dual mandate which calls for maximum employment and stable prices. Uh, and as we mentioned, in ordinary times, they had only one policy tool, the interest rate. So it was hard to balance these things. Um, and what that's created is a, a world, or what it had then, was a world in which you could get criticisms in a lot of different directions of whether the Fed was achieving its goals, this dual mandate. It is, are we really at maximum employment? You know, the, the Fed has continually called for, they think the unemployment rate is at a natural level, and yet it continues to decrease. A nominal GDP target, you can think of it just simply as the sum of the real growth rate of the economy and the inflation rate. So it's basically just the, the economy measured in dollars without any adjustments. 
Um, and that what you would want to see is the Fed set its monetary policy in such a way uh, that that growth in nominal GDP adjusting year over year is a stable trend path, uh, which can be done. All right. So the, 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 the next question that typically comes is, what would they do to accomplish this? Um, you know, it's a different system in terms, you could compare it to something like the Taylor Rule, which has sort of a mechanical prescribed adjustment in the interest rate given economic variables. Uh, nominal GDP targeting would not have anything quite that mechanis- mechanistic. Excuse me. Um, so the way in which you would do it is the Fed would set its monetary policy, and this again it would be on a sort of medium-term time horizon, so that what they were forecasting was stable growth in nominal GDP. Um, you can look at some of the summary of economic projections right now. Their longer-term projection shows for not a stable path. They show a slight burst of nominal growth in the next year or two, but then the longer-run trend is lower than that. Um, a successful nominal GDP targeting regime, when you looked at those longer-term forecasts, they would be anticipating the right growth rate. Okay, so when the public fully apprised of the uh, tools that are being used or the measurements that are being used to set future uh, nominal GDP, they can observe that as data is released. So yeah. the, so the, the expectations of market players in the economy is based upon things that are broadly available to the public. So they, they would not have to, I suppose, wonder what's going on in a room at the Federal Reserve when it comes time to uh, set interest rates or – Yeah, and or, if it was done properly, again, it would be on this uh, – what we call sort of a medium-term time horizon. So it would be several years out. And what that would afford all these economic actors, whether it be that in business or consumers – that you would have um, an anticipation of just how how much spending was going to be going on in the in in the economy. And I know spending can sometimes become a sensitive subject, but we're not talking here about using artificial spending to boost anything in the short term. Um, you would anticipate just how much money was going to be turning over in the economy, how many goods and services were being purchased, and that would sort of put a firmer floor under your own financial and economic decisions. Um, you contrast it with what happens when nominal GDP doesn't grow on that trend or when it takes a, a severe deep dive as it did in the financial crisis. It was down something like 8%. You could think about that in a certain way that the economy as a whole had 8% less money to satisfy its financial obligations than it would have otherwise. Um, and you think most debt in the country is not indexed to anything. They're nominal debts. So when you lose of your ability to repay things, you end up in in a pretty severe financial contraction, which is exactly what happened. All right. So what should we expect uh, the Federal Reserve to do in the next few years? Is there there any uh, appetite for a shift or at least a more transparent rule-based monetary policy? We probably shouldn't expect an explicit adoption of a nominal GDP target, though uh, were it to come, I and, and a great many others would, would welcome it. Um, however, Ch- uh, Chair Nominee Powell has expressed some uh, openness to using uh, rules in the conduct of monetary policy. And he's actually uh, highlighted two different ways that he, he's open to it. One is uh, as helpful guides to making decisions in real time, which of course is beneficial. Uh, but even, uh, I would say more important than that, 
he is open to using rules as benchmarks uh, to judge uh, the past performance of monetary policy and hopefully learn from some of the decisions they have made. So if you want to think about something explicit that we've gone through recently, uh, in January of 2012, the Federal Reserve uh, sort of clarified its mandate, not just for stable prices, but adopted an explicit 2% inflation rate target, uh, which they have chronically undershot since then. Now, we don't need to necessarily deba debate all the merits of inflation targeting as a monetary policy regime, but it's, it, it's problems to hit that is they should be learning something, and they've they've become increasingly exotic with their reasons for why they haven't hit it. Um, but if you were using some kind of a rule, you might look back on this chronic undershooting uh, and say, well, what what would another rule have called for policy wise? Um, and that would help you, I think, going forward. Uh to what extent does nominal GDP targeting, if it were to be implemented, to what extent and how does it constrain fiscal policy? You know, one of the one of the big benefits of a gold standard that people like Ron Paul would like to point out is, look, you don't get the uh, profligate welfare and warfare states uh, without uh, a, a monetary policy that isn't uh, cons that, is, that doesn't constrain fiscal policy. In fact, accommodates a very expansionary right. fiscal so the policy. Right. So yeah, the gold standard sort of made it much harder for uh, in a, for certain for a country to greatly expand its money supply. There was a, a self-equilibrating mechanism built into that system. Uh, nominal GDP targeting with regard to fiscal policy, uh, in my view, there would be a lot of benefits. Um, one thing it would depoliticize it to a great deal. Um, you would no longer. It would basically take the air out of the argument that we need to boost fiscal policy for any and all reasons as a way just to pump spending up. Because again, that the overall spending in the economy, the overall dollar exchange in the economy would be growing on a stable path. So if you recall sort of the news of the day, there were some economists saying, well, it really doesn't matter what the government's going to spend money on. Any project under the sun that's shovel ready is of an economic benefit. Nominal GDP targeting basically would render that argument moot going forward. Okay. Um, any closing thoughts before we wrap up here? Uh, I think nominal GDP targeting, as long as we're singing its praises, it deserves to be said that the one main reason uh, why it's superior is it handles shocks to the economy much, much better. Uh, both negative and positive shocks. So the Federal Reserve were to implement this. You think about surging oil prices, um, it would handle that much better. It would not create double contractions. Uh, and also, were we to see gains in productivity, which I think everybody would like to see, um, a nominal GDP targeting regime, as real growth were to increase, all it, that would do would be to dampen inflation rather than sort of overreacting in a different direction. All right. So... Uh Changing gears just a little bit, um, investors have gone from ignoring Bitcoin to talking about how it's a, a, a scheme to saying it's a bubble to uh, buying it as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And so based on what you know about it, there is a strict limit on the number of Bitcoins. Um, there are other cryptocurrencies that grow uh, at different rates mm -hmm. and uh, have different kinds of different arrangements in terms of the, the tools that uh, they uh, enable. Uh, what do you make of the fact that this this had such a meteoric rise? And by any conventional standard, you would say that's probably a bubble in this asset. Well, uh, I think as we've all learned, you know, calling something a bubble is a 
is tough to do. Both right. There in, are no in, there are, there are the no, level and the timing. Right. Um, so I I am not. I'm not about to, to try to put my mark down in there. Um, right, right, right. No, no, let me be let me be clear. We there's no way to anticipate a bubble, and if we could, if we check a bunch of boxes on uh, something and say, oh, this this makes it a bubble, then of course it wouldn't be, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> and I think you know, in, in terms of what we've been talking about uh, with the Federal Reserve, you know, Chair Yellen got quite a lot of Bitcoin questions uh, during her last uh, FOMC press conference just a couple of days ago. Uh, and there's more and more noise that the Federal Reserve might want to be getting involved in some kind of a regular, regulatory aspect. Um, you know, Bitcoin has had this meteoric rise, but the overall size of the cryptocurrency market um, doesn't seem to be all that large, juxtaposed to the economy as a whole. Uh, I can see nowhere where it's posing any systemic risk uh, other than the investors who, again, you know, capitalism is a profit and loss system. So if those folks want to pour in it high valuations, then they ought to be expected to, to take the downside should, should it go down. Um, I think what we don't want to see is an overbearing footprint by the Federal Reserve or somebody else like that. I think um, despite the rise of Bitcoin and maybe a few other coins recently, uh, it's still a market that I would say is in its infancy and it ought to be allowed to grow and sort of organically develop. I think it's an interesting thing to watch. Those people who want to play in that market ought to be able to do so. I think Cherry Allen called it a highly speculative asset. Um, it certainly is an asset in my view right now. Um, it doesn't seem to have the main properties of, of money at the moment. But what I don't want to see is um, some facet of the state become overbearing for it. I think that would be uh, that would be something that we, we ought to not see. And particularly the Federal Reserve. You know, it, this isn't a political comment, but it's a conservative institution in how fast it moves and what it changes. So you don't want something with that level of bureaucracy and that tone of a bureaucracy to get into a market that is uh, this young and potentially vibrant. All right. Tate Lacey is uh, a policy analyst in the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Thank you very much. Um, One housekeeping note in this holiday season, if you are a listener to the Cato Daily Podcast, we've started a new program, the Podcast Sponsor Program. So if you go to cato.org slash podcast sponsor, you can find out about how to support the Cato Podcast. And of course, Cato Connects often ends up as a Cato Daily Podcast. And if you're uh, joining us late, you can uh, subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast and uh, you'll have this conversation available to you. Thank you to Tate. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your questions. If you have any comments, you can tweet those at me or email them to me at my uh, email address here at the Cato Institute. And we'll talk to you again next time. Thanks, guys.